Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. The worst outcome for the American people is for us to do nothing. I think every Democratic senator understands that. And every Democratic, once you understand that, you know that we must have unity. There are lots of members who would want to say, well, if I don't get this, I can't vote for the bill, or if I don't get that. But that can't happen if we're going to help the American people in the boldest, biggest legislation in a very, very long time that helps the middle class. Murphy, great news. I think it might finally be infrastructure week. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it looked that way from space. I'm just unscrewing my helmet now being on the Bezos 11-minute uh, space flight. Uh, it all went well. There, there was some crying on board, but I'm not going to be one to talk, and I, I hid from the cameras. But uh, yes, I think it, it's infrastructure never ends now, but there's going to be some voting, and to sort that out, we decided it was time to get a political hack and a political leader, I'm going to be kind here, because he actually had the courage to put his name on the ballot and won a ton of congressional elections. I'm talking about Steve Israel, who spent, I believe, nine terms, Steve, was it? About 18 years in the U.S. Congress? Eight terms. Eight terms. Eight terms. There, there you go. Including four tortuous years as the chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. <laughs> the D trip. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to have you here because we're going to do a deep dive on redistricting in the midterms. Sure. But first, let's dive into infrastructure. Robert, what's going on? And then Steve, you can kind of school us a little bit on all this. Well, first I'm 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 glad and I think Murphy, we're fortunate to have we use D trip, but this is uh Steve was the chief political strategist for House Democrats for four right. years, which is um I think one of the most thankless jobs in all of Washington. He's now. Thank you. Thank you for saying thankless. <laughs> yeah, he's now herding cats, which is a lot easier. He's got a hundred of them that go in a straight line. And now heads Cornell University's Institute of Politics and Global Affairs, which uh, uh, they wouldn't let Murphy and I near Cornell. Um, so congratulations. <laughs> but, you know, this is the week, Murphy, that the the framework and the the theory uh, have to really start coming together in uh, in votes in the Senate, uh, in, in the committee structure and the work that's happening, because we only have a few weeks to start getting this thing done. And and we've got August recess coming up. Like, like I said, big vote apparently coming in the Senate. Schumer wants the process to begin a test vote uh, on Wednesday, which he filed yesterday. And so I think this again, this is a huge, huge week to start getting something done. Yeah, the voting is going to start with a procedural thing in the Senate, uh, which, as Steve well knows, and, and we all do from politics, talking is one thing, voting is another. So 
Uh, and I'm not sure the vote will even happen. Like a lot of these things, when it's not quite done yet, they don't have enough R's. The D's have some fractures in them. When they punt a little bit at the end, it, it looks like doom, but it can be a good sign that they're the proverbial day away from the deal where the last stuff is done. But but Steve, what do you think is going to happen? And then let's move to the House, because the Senate's getting all the attention here. But there have been some ominous rumblings, I think, on the progressive side in the House. It'll be uh, maybe a chore for Speaker Pelosi to hold that all together. But you, you've been there. Uh, you've been a leader on the, in the Democratic caucus. What, uh, what do you think is going to happen? Well, um, look, Nancy Pelosi right now is trying to thread a needle um, while balancing a scale, while skating on thin ice at the very same time. <laughs> it is, it's going so to take- easy. So you're saying this is easy. Yeah, no problem at all. By the way, for her, it's not that complicated. Uh, for almost anybody else, it would be impossible. So putting aside the merits of, uh, of infrastructure policy, and infrastructure is broadly popular in the country, in both the House and the Senate, let's, uh, let's break down the politics. This is all about midterm elections. Yeah. Uh, midterms are proxy elections on the president. And if in 2022, COVID is significantly behind us and the economy is doing well and people are getting jobs, then the Democrats have a path to retain their slim majority, possibly expand it. But if COVID is omnipresent uh, and the economy is really suffering, then the Republicans have a very uh, kind of level path at, at getting the five or six seats they need to take the majority. So this is a really tight midterm election, which is why the Republican strategy is not to give Joe Biden any help. Don't pass an infrastructure bill that's going to help the economy, right, and add jobs. Uh, and if, if it's going to pass, blame him for spending recklessly. And if it doesn't pass, blame him for failing to govern. And Pelosi's strategy is even more complex. She's got to protect about seven Democrats in her majority who are in Trump districts, but she cannot protect them and pass this bill without progressives. Now, as you know, those seven uh, Democrats in Trump districts, they're moderates. So she's got to protect them and bring them back to retain her gavel, but she cannot pass an infrastructure bill without the progressives. So she's a maestro. I sat with her for four years watching her like she's like Tuscanini conducting a jazz fusion orchestra. Uh, she, but she will not do anything before the Senate passes a bipartisan bill with hard infrastructure and a reconciliation bill with progressive priorities. At that point, she'll know what the landscape looks like, make a decision in real time and uh, bring bills up for a vote on the floor. Yeah, a lot of orchestration. Here. Yeah, no, no, it, it, it is going to take uh, some wizardry. And, and the problem is the stakes are kind of increasing because in the Republican world in the Senate, there's real tension. One side, the smaller side, led by the Romneys and the uh, uh, the Portmans of the world, are like, look, infrastructure is good. We took the big crazy bill and we whittled it down to real brick-and-mortar infrastructure, which all the governors of either party really want, even if they won't say it publicly. So let's do this. And then we, we, we can go home and say, hey, we actually got some stuff done and we stopped all the left-wing stuff. There will be another vote. We can have an old-fashioned fight over whether we want another great society-sized multi-trillion-dollar spending program or not. Good politics for us to be against it. Good politics for a lot of them if they can moderate it a little bit, to Steve's point, to be for it. But that, that's the second fight. It's the linkage where it gets tricky because the other Republicans are like, wait a minute. We all win from infrastructure, but Biden wins the most because he's got the biggest job and the biggest microphone. 
And right now we got COVID coming back. Biden was wearing a halo on COVID until recently. So now that, you know, and that could slow down the economy if Delta surges, masks, all that stuff. So they're like, is this really a time to throw a life preserver to Joe Biden, which is why they need 10 Republican votes. They probably have eight of them right now in the Senate to move this thing forward. The more it gets combined from the Republican point of view that it both have to pass pressure on Manchin, et cetera. We've talked about all this a lot. It, it's even more tempting for the Republicans to say, no, no, they held a gun to our head. You know, we're not voting to endorse some multi-trillion dollar welfare thing. So the pressure to sink the thing becomes stronger, not weaker. Uh, and then you've got the progressives on the left who are clearly not too enthusiastic about infrastructure. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a powder keg right now. And I thought three weeks ago this thing would go because there's a win for everybody. But now I think they're, they're smelling more blood on the uh, Republican side. Well, I think, well, let's be clear. Murphy has this like fantasy a little bit in his head that, uh, that, that, that the liberals blow this thing up in, in the House or, or somebody gets too greedy in the Senate and the Portman Romneys of the world just kind of step back and shake their heads like, gosh, we were ready to do it, but, uh, but it just, uh, the other guys blew it up, which would be interesting. I will say, I, I think, but not to leave the Senate too quickly. I think the likely the, the, the biggest hurdle in my mind is I don't think I know the names of the 10 Senate Republicans that are going to be for this yet. And and that's that's a scary thing. But let me ask you this, Congressman, because you 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 had to, to fight with this. Uh, there's a the reason why I think Democrats ultimately are going to hang together and create this. You, you know, cobbled together coalition that could could only be put together in these pressure filled times is you don't want to go to the voters in 2022 without saying, hey, here's what our majority means for America. Walk us through. I mean, you've you've said I know you've sat in those meetings and said, do this. And here's why. Yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. So let, let me paint a picture for you. When you walk into Nancy Pelosi's office, uh, she has two things prominently on display. She's got a stack of baseball bats leaning against the console with several television sets. Helpful. Helpful. Has she used them on anybody we know? <laughs> and she's also got a bowl of Girardelli chocolates. And so mm. I always took that as kind of a subliminal message. We can do this the easy way or we can do this the really hard way, but we are going to do this. Her fundamental obligation, uh, and she's all about her caucus and her clients. Her clients are the American people, but also her caucus making sure that she's protecting the majority and bringing these people back. Bob, I think what you just said is the case she's going to make, that at the end of the day, we may have an imperfect package here, but we are delivering something to the American people. And if we don't deliver something to the American people, even if it's 80% or 60%, we're going to lose this majority. And all it's going to take is six Democrats not coming back. To lose this majority. So that's the case she's going to make. And she's going to make it to the caucus in general. Uh, you know, she will have her meeting with the caucus and she'll make the case passionately. But then, and this is her brilliance, she brings them in one at a time and she sits them down near the baseball bats and the church alley chalk. <laughs> and she will talk it through. And her brilliance is also she will listen and try and give an individual member what they need. And she will not give up until she gets that whip count where it needs to be. Yeah. 
You know, just on the theory that politics is, of course, a mirror image on both parties in many ways. When Schwarzenegger was governor, he kept the about 85-pound Conan sword right behind his desk, <laughs> which totally drew your eye when you walked in the room. You kind of stared at it, and it was similar, one at a time. So riddle me this, guys. Let's say that Joe Manchin decides he's not for $3 trillion and instead is only for $2 trillion on the Great Society 2.0 stuff. So they can get the clean infrastructure. They, they find the last two Republicans, and they can get the thing done in the Senate, the bipartisan bill that Biden is for and the Romney group. But they can't get the other one done. They're one or two short, and the progressives won't take a smaller bill. Manchin won't go all the way. And it goes to the House, and the House politics become, do we pass the standalone infrastructure bill where the Repubs are going to get some credit, but at least in my view, Biden will get the most, or do the progressives, all 90 of them in that caucus, do they bolt then? And even Nancy can't hold it all together if they can't get both done in the Senate. That, that to me, is going to be the real potential scenario where it could unwind. I think I think uh, Bob was right when he said before that Pelosi's going to make the case that you bolt on this vote, you're going to be in the minority right. uh, in right. the next Congress. Uh, you will not be able to get anything done. Uh, and so let's let's do what's imperfect and build on that. Yeah, I, I, and, I, and look, I think it's a powerful case because the difference between the House and the Senate is you're you're there's you still have the ability to play a little bit in the Senate if you're not in the majority. It's it's look, it's still right. a minority. But in the, in the House, it's really, really hard. You know, the the, every, the rules committee and, and everything is really judged majority minority. And, I, and look, I mean, the, the, the exact scenario, Steve, that you described is how we got from a concept of health care uh, to Obamacare being law. And, and I, I, you know, I, I've said this before, but it, it bears repeating that there would not be. Obamacare uh, without Nancy Pelosi, because I, I don't know how many baseball bats and chocolate she had then. My guess is there was a, an equal use of both uh, right up until the very end. Hey, Bob, but, people, were, people were bruised and fat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say, you know, she's she's remarkably effective. And I think she's done this in a smart way too, Murphy, to your point. She's not going to make her members walk the plank on something that isn't going to happen until the Senate acts. And I think that was really smart because, look, she's been there a long time. Some of the members haven't been there as long, but they remember, you know, a lot of these fiscal and spending bills, they start in the House. uh, And what happens is the House passes something that is that is big and grandiose. And then the Senate does their whittling job. And then the the House has to either defend what they voted against. I'm reminded of like this is going in the I'm in the Wayback Machine now. The BTU tax, right? Oh my this, goodness. you know, the, the, this idea of, of of what Clinton was doing in his first economic recovery package. And again, the House had to walk the plank on something that the Senate was like, "We're not doing that. That's crazy." And then the House has to own that vote. So I think she's she's played her cards in a smart way. And again, I I, I think. And I love the way you said it, Congressman. I think this idea that let's not make the perfect the enemy of the good. Yes, we could sit here for six more years and we could study this and we could figure out the 99.9% percentile great idea, or we could get 80% of what we want and still spike the football in the end zone. Uh, And I think that's the direction that they'll go. You, You guys are talking sense. I totally agree. But 
I just worry with all the progressive muscle flexing. I look at their rhetoric about the infrastructure bill. If, if the Senate can't do both, I mean, it would be a, it would be an incredible blunder not to do the standalone one. That is a big win for every incumbent in politics and a bigger win for Biden, who needs something good to happen, I think, um, uh, in order to hold on to the midterms. But I don't know. I, I, I hear the the thundering on the left. Maybe I am paranoid about it being a conservative, but uh, I think uh, I think the House could be unpredictable here. At the end of the day, you know, Pelosi uh, will bring this to her tried and true mathematical formula uh, in determining when this is voted on and how she assembles the 218 or so votes she needs. I, I would be in the room with her when Speaker Boehner would call or Speaker Ryan and say, look, we got I got a problem. I know we can't go off this debt cliff. I don't have enough Republican votes to prevent it uh, or an, a different issue. And her mathematical formula was always X plus Y equals 218. You give me the X, I'll give you the Y, as long as my caucus believes in it, and we'll get to 218. Uh, to Mer's point, they're gonna, she's going to wait for these two Senate bills to come in. She's going to establish what the X is, what, what the Delta is, and cobble it together. I, I'm, I believe very strongly that there is going to be an infrastructure bill. Not everybody's going to be happy with it, but the Democrats cannot afford to go home in a midterm election without having something big and bold to point to, even if it's not big or bold enough. Yeah, that that is the hanging in the morning, the midterms, and that does tend to clarify even the most muddled mind. So if I had to bet, I'll bet you're right. I'm just a little paranoid about what I hear out of the progressive side. All right, hold that thought. We're going to take a short break, and now a word from our sponsors. Murphy, you know, whenever you get going and ranting on the cost of this and that and the Republicans, this and that, you know, the one thing that I just put on that makes me always feel better relief band (laughs) for heavy nausea. I don't blame you. I feel that way whenever we get into progressive loony land, my friend. But what do we do about it? Well, do you know one out of three Americans regularly suffer from nausea? We've all experienced that horrible feeling, me maybe more than others, Uh, whether it's in the backseat of your car, staring at your phone, or after one too many on a night out with friends, or even just the anxiety of a normal workday. Nausea can ruin your day and force you to change your plans. So there's a great thing now that you should check out, Murphy. It's called Relief Band, and this product is 100% drug-free, doesn't create drowsiness, and provides all-natural, long-lasting relief with zero side effects for as long as it's needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now, through Relief Band, it is available to everybody. So let's just say if you're in the middle of this podcast and Murphy's ranting about the cost of infrastructure in World War II, I've now got a cure. World War II analogy is not about infrastructure. <laughs> I'm getting nauseous now. Luckily, they sent us a couple. But here, here's a question our smart listeners want, Robert. How does it work? Well, what Relief Band does is it stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. So when it blocks that signal, you get less nausea, less feeling you're sick. Murphy, you've tried this, right? Yeah, they sent us a couple. And I just turned on uh, progressive radio, slipped it on, and I was immune. I felt fine. It's comfortable. It works. And it's really good. I lent it to my wife, too. Uh, and I've told friends about it. One friend told me car sickness is what it's really good about. Anytime you go on a boat, and I grew up around boats on the Great Lakes, increasingly you see these things because a lot of people are very bothered by boat motion. Obviously, Robert, and you might want to wax on about this, it's a great pushback on hangovers, let alone anxiety, 
pregnancy, and all the things you want to get peace of mind by knowing you got a cure or a way to prevent them. Because nausea is a bummer. It can just kill your day. So as you're getting ready for that summer road trip, you're hopping on a boat or just anxious about heading back into the office, try Relief Band. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for Hacks on Tap listeners. They know they're all nauseous all the time from listening to us. (laughs) If you go to reliefband.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to R-E-L-I-E-F band.com and use our promo code hacks for 20% off plus free shipping. Say goodbye to nausea. Let's talk about the midterms. This policy stuff is going to give us a migraine. I think at least Robert and I We're we're political hacks and, and 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 uh, I think we ought to move on to the midterm. So before we dive in, uh, we ought to probably do a Hacks on Tap quick refresher course to our poor, long-suffering listeners here about reapportionment and redistricting, two hard-to-spell words that are connected but not the same. So I'll start, and then you guys take it up. Every 10 years, we do a census. And we find out because we can't mint more congressional seats. Historically, that's been done in the Senate. We used to be great at, hey, let's cut Dakota in half and create more Senate seats. Can't do that in the House. So somebody's got to win. Somebody's going to got to lose his population move. So they're going to be less in Illinois, more in Florida and Texas, et cetera. So from that, then the politicians enter with redistricting. So why don't you guys kind of walk everybody through a little different in different states, but but how that generally works. Steve, you want to take that one because you lived it. Well, you, you just gave me PTSD uh, from the <laughs> 2012 uh, redistricting. Uh, look, whatever state uh, controls uh, the, the process uh, benefits uh, that party. Uh, and so for, in New York, for example, in New York, uh, we have a Democratic governor, Democratic legislature. We also have, by the way, an independent redistricting commission. But at the end of the day, the independent redistricting commission, if they don't come up with a map for New York, it's going to go to this legislature and the governor, uh, which means that Republicans in New York, if you're a Republican member of Congress, you're very concerned that you're going to lose a district. Uh, where Republicans run the whole thing, uh, they're going to pick up seats. Now, I've seen forecasts that Republicans can pick up just by redistricting alone anywhere from five to eight seats. All the Republicans need to do is pick up six to get in the majority. Uh, and so this is clearly going to be a challenge for Democrats trying to figure out how you retain the majority when partisan redistricting may be eliminating Democrats before they even uh, before there's even an election. Yeah, no, no. You know, it's funny to go a little aside and then you guys can slap me back on track. But I always love the independent commissions because voters love an independent commission. But redistricting is so important. Uh, it reminds me of one of the great political movies I highly recommend, The Great McGinty, a Preston Sturgis movie from around 1940. And it's about this hobo who is very good at stuffing the ballot, so gets elected. The character of the boss is played by the great character actor Akeem Tamaroff. So our guy, the city councilman, comes marching in, and Akeem in his big office is reading the newspaper. We see the headline, Reform Movement Gains Support. And he says, boss, boss, the reform movement, they're onto us. We're screwed. And he, the boss crumples up the paper and looks at him. And Tamara says, you idiot, I am the reform movement. <laughs> you know. And so these independent committees, as you say, in the end, don't become that independent. There's also hijinks. 
I used to live in a district in California that the great old Waxman Berman Democratic machine drew to two highly politically talented members of Congress uh, that was only contiguous at low tide. <laughs> And I can tell you, I used to sit around with John Angler in Michigan, and we were looking at the map, what to do about Sandy Levin, a rather effective and, and, and from our partisan point of view, irritating Democratic congressman. We kept trying to figure out how to draw him into Ontario, Canada. <laughs> so th this is going to be pure politics. And then there's the civil rights aspect to it, you know, because often there's this interesting we, politics where – you know, the, the minority voters like to have um, minority representation, but because African-American voters vote so Democratic, you pack enough in to get a black member of Congress. The Republicans can be happy because you make other districts more Republican when you move those numbers. And then the Justice Department can get involved. And then there are lawsuits to slow it all down. So it, it, it is quite a circus. But I agree, Steve, with your analysis to Republicans very well between Portionment and redistricting get uh, get a freebie of you know two to three seats here in a six seat margin, plus the average loss. You know I don't really believe the full historical thing, but the average loss is about twenty seven seats for an incumbent president. So those those headwinds are pretty big. Gibbs, what would you tell the DCCC? And then we're going to do the mean gremlin trick. We're going to transport Steve back to his old job and get the strategy because the Great. deck is stacked. So glad I came. Yeah. Luckily, it's only make-believe here on Hacks on Tap. I think there's kind of two buckets here, right? There's the known and the unknown. And the known is what you just talked about. And look, there's no there's no real guessing game as to where we think a bunch of these seats are going to net out from a redistricting standpoint. Because you understand, as the congressman said, what legislatures control this, what quote-unquote independent commissions control them and whatnot. So you got you have a pretty good sense of kind of how this will play out. I think the great unknown, obviously, for 2022 is I don't think we have a real sense yet of what the political environment's going to look like, you know, and I'm and I and quite frankly, it could change several times. You you mentioned this, Murphy, um, you know, COVID's back on the rise, right? The stock market freaked out a little bit yesterday. Not that that's how most people judge their own personal financial situations, but it gives you a little bit of a tell. Uh, and and look, there's a lot of churning, and and these are the dog days of legislating, right? These are I'm going to now refer to these as the baseball and chocolate days uh, of of legislating. <laughs> these are these are where, quite frankly, the slog of getting something done it doesn't conform with the news cycle. I used to stand up there at the podium, and every day they wanted like, well, what happened today on healthcare? Well, the you know, the subcommittee on something you've never heard of had a hearing on something you didn't know about. And the, and, and it's just it, it maintaining some of that momentum is hard. But I think what we don't really have a good sense of is to the point that was made earlier. How's the economy doing? Right. How do you feel about our, our schools open? It, you know, have we gotten more people vaccinated uh, and, and, and are things getting back to normal? And how, how do kind of people feel about what's what's coming and i think that will be that's going to be the real interesting thing and and you know it, that won't be formed for some some bit and it will take really the adroitness of each party to take advantage of the tailwinds of the headwinds and then you know try through the legislative process either to add some points onto the board through infrastructure for democrats or slow something down and create chaos chaos actually is bad for the party in power regardless i think of who creates that chaos and republicans know that which is why 
quite frankly, if you're in the House minority like Kevin McCarthy, your job every morning is stir the cauldron of chaos. Can I really briefly narrow down the, the midterm to, to its essence? Sure, sure. Look, because of redistricting, there are only about 20 swing seats left in the United States Congress. Districts have either been drawn bright blue or ruby red. So we're down to 20 swing seats. If you are in a bright blue district, no matter what's happening with the economy or COVID, you're voting for a Democrat. If you yeah, go out vote, you may stay home. They got to get them out to vote. If you're living in a ruby red district, no matter what happens, you're voting for a Republican. It's those 20 or 22 in the middle. 16 of those districts have members of Congress uh, from one party uh, and their districts voted for a presidential candidate in the other. So there are nine, what I call uh, Biden Republicans, nine Republican members of Congress in districts that Joe Biden won. There are seven Democratic incumbents in districts that Donald Trump won. That's where the, where the rubber meets yeah. the road. And what happens in those districts is going to determine whether or not Nancy Pelosi retains the gavel or it goes to Kevin McCarthy. Great point. You know, I was talking to some uh, some base R's and they said there is some concern in those ruby red districts about getting the vote out because they're worried on the way to polls that Jewish space lasers might get them. But hopefully <laughs> the new aluminum foil hats are probably going to handle yeah, that. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. We, we You know, there used to be in the House, I'm going to be off a bit on the number, but about 85 members between the most conservative Democrat and most liberal Republican. Now it's like one. And so, as you say, there are those 20 districts. And I, I think if it were a fair fight, if you didn't have a couple of free seats that are, that are fair, but just happen with reapportionment and redistricting, uh, and the Republicans didn't up their game, I would be worried because the big news of the last, you know, four years in politics has been Republicans have blown the suburbs. And Steve, you know about this. You took a swing Republican suburban district in Long Island. You held it forever. And, you know, those are hard to get back once you get an incumbent who's smart and knows how to how to play the local politics. So we've done nothing with the House Republican, you know, crazy tunes to get that back. That said, my big fear as an anti-Trump conservative is that the Republicans will win kind of for free just based on big stuff, midterms, maybe Biden has an economic stumble if COVID comes back as we were discussing, stuff like that. And then the media narrative will be, ah, crazy's back. They need Trump. The formula works. And then, you know, they kind of they they get a free win that they cash in and, and the narrative goes all sideways. Uh, but I think if this were a fair universe, the stuff they're doing now, they're never going to get those suburbs back. Not They're just alienating those votes. Right now, McCarthy's picks for the January 6th commission. You know, Jim Jordan, literally the guy who can't afford a blazer but is never short on clown shoes, is going to grab the microphone and scream and yell and make a mockery out of something that's actually really, really important. So I'm of two minds. I'm of, by the rules of how you normally win and lose campaigns, they ought to be in trouble because of the special factors of a first term, midterm and redistricting and reapportionment. I think they may be a lot luckier than they earn, deserve to be. What would you do if the gremlin made you go back to D-Trip, assuming conventional wisdom is trouble? What kind of, what, what, what would you do a little different than the obvious stuff? You know, turnout's important. We got to raise a lot of money. Do you have a theory of it? Because I think they ought to take some chances because I think they're looking at a headwind. Yeah. So look, I think uh, that the chairman, Sean Patrick Maloney, is doing a phenomenal job. He's recruiting well. He's raising money. Uh, McCarthy raised a ton of money in the last quarter, by the way. D-Trip is doing what it needs to do. Pelosi's a fundraising machine. But I think, uh, I'm just going to repeat what I said before. 
Um, this majority rests on uh, Congressman Ron Kind in a Trump district in Wisconsin. I would be focusing on Ron Kind. Uh, I would be focusing on Alyssa Slotkin from Michigan. I would be focusing on Cindy Axney from Iowa. Those Democrats in Trump districts are the imperative. And if you can't bring those seven back and you're going to lose, some people say six by redistricting itself, it becomes almost impossible to retain the majority. I think they're going to retain the majority, actually. I have a counter historic view of that. But you've got to protect those frontliners first and foremost with everything it takes. What would you do? Would you whip them hard on some of these tougher House votes where they don't really need the extra vote and you want to protect them on the vote, but for the media narrative, the White House is going to want to show solidarity? I mean, I'd give them a long leash and let them run like hell from some of the spending stuff. Yeah, I would too, and they're doing it. Uh, They're doing it out of their own ideology or their own politics. They're doing it. The White House understands fully uh, that you want to show solidarity, but a Republican majority for the last two years of your administration is really going to suck. So they're going to do what it takes to let these guys come back. You know, Murphy, I would say this too. There's a few things I think that that go into this larger atmospherics discussion. I mean, one, you know, Republicans, I, I, I have been a little surprised they didn't have this when we were going through the debate on the recovery, uh, essentially the Biden recovery plan. I, you know, there really isn't a formed GOP message altogether right now. It's a little bit like they're shooting at any target that sticks their head up. Well, there's one that Trump is God and walks on water, and that's the message of about three quarters of the House conference now. Well, and I've, my next point was, you know, I, I don't think Trump's going anywhere. And I think if you read, uh, if you get a chance to read, there was an article in Vanity Fair uh, on the web yesterday around the the interview that Phil Rucker and Carol Lenning did with Trump back in March. And I'm telling you, there's there's no less crazy going on at Mar-a-Lago or inside of the Trump political mind uh, than there was at any moment in the White House. And oh, I and bet I, it's more now because, you yeah. know, he's in Elba and he's, he's screaming out the window and everything. But yeah, I agree. It will be remarkable. I do think one of the things, you know, that, that seems a little different than you know, the days of, uh, of I remember being in Senate races or, or places where you were hoping that if you didn't have enough money, that the committees like the DTRIP or the DSCC had enough money or whatnot. I will say, I don't, I, I think money is no longer an object in these races. I think there's so much money that is, and so much of it can be raised literally with the click of a button on a computer. Yeah. You know, you don't have to, I don't have to convince a congressman, hey, I know we got to, let's go three days out in Hollywood and LA and San Francisco and Seattle and let's go. You got to take you off the trail. No, 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 no. Just get a crafty, <laughs> a well-written email and and money can start coming in. And I think that's not to minimize how hard it is to raise money, but I think to the point of this majority being what's at stake and exactly what Congressman just said, which is the White House knows everybody in Washington is focused on one thing, and that is breaking some side, the House or the Senate, the majority from Democrat to Republican, because it changes the calculus of what gets done in years three and four as you lead into an even bigger reelection, which is that of the president. You know, it's so funny because I'll bet we have a few congressional members who listen and they're all smiling, especially on the Democratic side at your your note about money, which I totally agree with, because I'm sure Steve remembers 
more than once flying all day or all night to California and sitting there keeping a straight face while a movie star psychic nutritionist explains that the campaign really needs to harness the psychic energy of trees to move undecided voters. I mean, hell, I've been in a few of those meetings myself. I was going to say, this sounds like you, uh, you're remembering a meeting and a flashback, not the congressman. I wrote an article uh, for the Weekly Standard years ago about uh, what it must be like for Dick Gephardt to fly out and listen to Barbara Streisand talk politics for three, three hours to be able to raise the 500 grand. But we bless activists of all stripe. It's good to participate. Uh, and I think people need to understand just the House is the checkbook. So it's everything on domestic yep. policy. Uh, the Senate, uh, the, you know, gets all the glory, but the, the House is the checkbook. Biden loses the checkbook. The domestic agenda is done. Uh, but boy, oh boy, they're not shy. They're asking for a lot. We're, we're see. I think the Republicans are very comfortable to be in the big spending argument uh, on some of this domestic stuff. And, uh, you know, we, and then as by, as Robert, you like to say, you never know what's going to happen tomorrow too. I mean, Cuba, Haiti, South China Sea, we're still a long way out. I will be fascinated to watch Republicans make the big spending argument after four years of, uh, of the, the bar tab, uh, during the Trump administration. Oh, I agree. How, da- how dare you suggest that there's hypocrisy? In the yeah, West. exactly. Yeah, it's like there's what? drinking in politics what? Yeah, exactly. in the casino. There's gambling. I'm shot, shot, <laughs> shot. One of the things that's bummed me out being under the hood for so long, American politics is boy, voters seem pretty damn okay with hypocrisy. They, you know, we're see, I was shocked at the way the Republicans forgot were fiscal conservatives during Trump. Trump, who even on a personal basis was fleecing the taxpayers. But we're seeing, put it this way, if it is a choice for the R's between the new sheet music of space lasers and the insurrection didn't happen and Trump is God and just singing the old hits of they're going to bust the government, $3 trillion welfare program, blah, blah, blah. The old sheet music will get them on something better than the madness they're doing now. But we we shall see. Well, and, and, and let's remind everybody that, you know, as we, we've obsessed and talked a lot about infrastructure as that's the sexy vote of right now, there, there's a lot of like blocking and tackling votes that I think are going to decide sort of what this atmosphere looks like. We've got a fun yeah. government and you're going to have to raise the debt limit. And the last time we had a Democratic president and a Republican Congress and it came to raising the debt limit, uh, you know, all looniness broke out. And uh, and I think it will be interesting and fascinating to watch how that transpires, because, again, you know, they're the the. Kevin McCarthy's of the world. I don't know that he can control. I'm, I'm for certain he can't control some of the people on the very edges of his party when it comes to nobody's going to say, well, the, you know, the, you're going to default in the credit ratings of the country that they just don't even care about that stuff. It's not even in their in in their brain power. No, that's deep state propaganda, right? Exactly. You know, why I know. would we, well, why would we the, care about yes. the U.S. dollar being the reserve currency when we can yeah. print Trump money right. out in Idaho? And now, a word from our sponsors. You know, trust is hard to earn these days, but I'll tell you, in this digital era, with a lot of electronic ears everywhere, one outfit you can trust, I say with full confidence, is ExpressVPN. What is ExpressVPN? What does it do? Well, it is a way to create between your computer or mobile device and internet servers and the the way you uh, get information or communicate on the internet, a secure link. So one, it doesn't log your activity, and two, it protects you with a high-tech kind of security wall called a virtual private network of VPN that really, really works. 
Murphy, they developed a technology trusted server that makes their VPN servers incapable of storing any data at all. ExpressVPN now uses Lightway, a new VPN protocol they engineered to make user speeds faster than ever. And if you've tried other VPNs in the past uh, and sometimes experienced a slow connection, ExpressVPN, you should give it a shot. It's blazing fast, lets you stream videos in HD quality with zero buffering. It's easy to use. Murphy, this may be the best thing. No technical skills needed. Even oh, you and I oh can yes, do it. yeah, they're bingo. I mean, if I had a chimp that had privacy problems, I would show it ExpressVPN because you can work it with just one button. And that speed thing is true. I've tried other ones; they can be slower. Speed counts, and ExpressVPN is really quick. And it's not just us. CNET, The Verge, and many other tech journals rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with a VPN that you can trust. Use our show link, expressvpn.com slash hacks on tap today and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvvictorpaulnorman.com slash hacks on tap. Visit expressvpn.com slash hacks on tap. Real quick, just on congressional stuff, Ohio 11, there is a hell of a special going on out there. It's Marsha Fudge's district and basically Cleveland and in and, and, and that area, uh, urban district. She's going to the cabinet and you have this just face ripping primary going on there between Chantel Brown, who was the long shot and is still a little behind in the polls, but has closed it. Uh, and Nina Turner, who's a real Bernie warrior. Uh, Congressional Black Caucus PAC endorsed Chantel Brown, and now it's just a face-ripping axe fight. Uh, what do we think? Because it is a good bellwether of progressives versus more Biden moderates in the Democratic Party. What Anybody want to guess on that? I think Brown's going to upset, but I'm, I'm predicting my book on that one because I'm much more for her than, uh, in my view, wackadoodle progressive uh, Nina Turner. You know, it's uh, I, I see that as entertaining but immaterial in the long run. That's going to be a Democratic district no matter what happens. It will always yeah, be a Democratic district. So there's this proxy war about endorsements, but the Dems are going to retain it. Yeah. So from your point of view, it's like, okay, boy, we we have a we have a tiger or a leopard. Either one, will, you know, they're they're big cats. We're fine. Yeah, that's yeah, a good point. There's a lot of money going into that. You know, again, it's a it's a surrogate. Uh, race. Uh, and so, it, you know, Clyburn and, and Hillary Clinton and Ted Deutsch and the CBC and the Jewish Democratic Committee of America has been spending pretty heavily to support the more moderate candidate, Brown. And then you've got Bernie and uh, uh, AOC in the squad supporting uh, Turner. But at the end of the day, oh, by the way, and Turner's lead is shrinking, according to the latest polls I saw. Yeah, yeah. There's a new one, five points from a big Dem pollster just came out. I mean, they're definitely closing on her, and that'll bring in more money for Brown because the bet for what's going to happen crowd may shift from the early polls, which showed uh, Nina Turner leading to, oh, maybe not so sure. So, yeah, it's a real barn burner. But after August 3rd, assuming somebody gets to 50 percent, after August 3rd, nobody's going to be thinking about Ohio 11 anymore. Yeah, though I will say, if Nina Turner wins, the squad will take a victory lap on that, which is why I'm sure Nancy's totally neutral. <laughs> but if I had to read her mind, uh, I'll bet she's uh, go brown go, yeah. just like Clyburn. I will say this just for our listeners. You can see why 
Steve was the chief strategist for House Democrats for four years because if the jersey's blue, it doesn't matter what the number is, right? right. Like I, I don't look at you're just thinking to yourself, there's a there's a map on the wall, color it in and move to the next one. And uh, you know, because and it, look again, I think not to bring it back to this, but I think that's that's where Nancy Pelosi is. She understands that to get two eighteen out of four thirty five in the Democratic Party means you're going to have people that are you're going to have the Ron Kinds of of the world who who've been there for for quite some time and been very effective for Wisconsin, and you're going to have people like uh, like AOC. They're going to represent very different viewpoints. At the end of the day. What has to pull them together, though, is getting something done so that each of them can go home and say, we have made a difference for the American people and for our district. And that's why a lot of the are incumbents, some quietly because of the terror, are for the infrastructure, the standalone infrastructure thing. There's not a member of Congress, I don't care, of either party, except for a few real cranks on our side who don't want to go home and say, hey, the I-5 bypass is going to happen. Me, Congressman Fred Bag of Donuts, made that happen. And be there next to the governor cutting the ribbon. That's Politics 101. And it's good for the country. Let's hope they do it. We're going to be watching it like hawks here. Now, let's play the music. This is from from a longtime listener, Robert, uh, out there for for Steve. We saw a little bit in the 2020 cycle, the concern around messaging like defund the police and socialism that I thought Republicans, particularly in places like South Florida and other districts, did a really good job of getting people riled up about and convincing people. And what concern do you have about that heading into 2022? And what do you think Democrats are going to do to make sure those aren't labels that stick? I'm so glad that you asked, because this has been the, the debate that Democrats have. I have been to so many fundraisers on the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side of New York, where I have heard my fellow progressives in Manhattan say, this is what the Democratic message should be. And that Democratic message may play well in Brooklyn, New York, but it does not play well in Brooklyn, Iowa. There is a place called Brooklyn, Iowa. <laughs> Messages, everybody says they should be strategic. Yeah, they should be strategic, but they've also got to be meaningful and they've got to play in separate media markets. In those districts that I mentioned, those seven Democratic congressional districts that voted for Donald Trump, defund the police is lethal. In fact, I can tell you that Max Rose, a congressman from Staten sure, Island, sure. Brooklyn, he probably lost, I mean, that was a very tough Republican district. He probably lost his election because he went to a rally where there were signs that said defund the police. He was against defunding the police, but the Republicans jumped on that, spent a ton of money showing that footage. Uh, and so that kind of message, I think, is, is lethal in those districts. What counts in those districts is, and I've, I've been to those districts, I've flown into them and driven through them. It's all about jobs. It's going to be about COVID. Is, the, is, is Main Street boarded up because of COVID or, or you know, is, is, are the boards down and we can go shopping? It's whether you feel like you have mobility, you have a future. It's about the cost of its taxes and the cost of education and your kids doing okay. Those are the issues that resonate in, in those districts. So the democratic message cannot be one size fits all. It's got to play differently uh, in different districts. It's like driving, you know, listening to your radio. Sometimes you're listening to jazz. Sometimes you're listening to classical. Sometimes you're listening to classic rock. The democratic message has to kind of hit the same tune. Different messages appeal differently to different kinds of constituencies and consumers. 
That is completely right, and it's why we had a little party at the NRCC when Steve left the job at the T-Trip, because so many <laughs> Dems do not understand that. They think that the rest of the country is a slightly less interesting place than Manhattan, but very similar politically. All right, so that was obviously a made-up question, but it was such an important topic that we wanted to give the congressman a chance to take a shot at it, because strategically it's so important to the Dems. I have a fun question here for you, Robert. You want to try this one? This is from, well, I'm going to change the name, Cheech. Why is Biden passing up an easy bipartisan win on legalizing marijuana? Over 60% of the country thinks it should be legal for recreational use, and it has passed in a number of red states, actually from Jacob, not Cheech Marin. What do you think <laughs> about pot politics from the Democratic point of view, Robert? I know you're often high during the broadcast, yeah. so I thought <laughs> you might have special insight. I'm going to admit I may be the worst person to answer this question, never having tried marijuana in my entire life. I was uh, a walk-on college soccer player at NC State. Uh, we were drug tested six times a year, and I wanted to be – it was pretty clear that I did not have the talent that one needed to possess to have a, a bad drug test. So I never got in, I haven't done any of that, but I would say, I think I'd go back a little bit to what the, the Congressman just talked about. I think it's a message that doesn't play in every place, right? I don't think that's, again, I think in, in some places in Iowa, in some places in Wisconsin, it, it's, it's not something that you want to be defending. That having been said, I do think the larger view on, drugs has changed quite a bit. You know, I don't know if we're all the way to where you're going to get something that that's legalized, but you know, I see it in Chicago there's it's legal in places like Colorado have, have done this for quite some time. They're getting some valuable tax revenue off of it and we're decriminalizing it in a way that I think is smart su such that we're not building billion dollar prisons to house people for smoking a little marijuana. So I don't know if it's a national message. I think Look, I think the one interesting thing about political campaigns, I think, that are different these days than they were maybe even 10 or 20 years ago, or certainly 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, which is, look, you can do micro-targeting these messages. I can try to reach a, a, a young voter who's really concerned about drug legalization and just not have – you know, used to be like, hey, let's blare it on CBS. Well, that's not a message you probably want to blare on CBS but it may be a, a message you want to deliver to a discrete digital audience. So I, I think uh, I, I think there'll be certainly messages where that happens, and I think there'll be places that are that are going to be far less keen on it. Yeah, I, I recommend signage right over Frito and Dorito stands in Seven Eleven stores. <laughs> You're going to zero right in on that key demographic, uh, Congressman. What do you think about that issue nationally? I, I kind of agree, local. I think Robert is exactly right. Um, if you did a poll right now on what Americans are concerned about, uh, marijuana is not coming up. It's not showing in any poll. But you can absolutely uh, do some micro-targeting, which means uh, both parties are probably going to be purchasing lists of cannabis dispensary uh, customers <laughs> and doing some digital to, the, to them. You know, I struggle with it. I have to admit, when I was young, I remember watching Footloose, and I always sided with the village elders. You know, I was that guy. So I'm, uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm not for heavy crim penalties. I mean, California, everybody's baked all the time anyway, so it's probably over. And I get the medicinal use, and I support that. But I, I don't know if a lot of good comes from it. But anyway, I'll put me down as undecided and sober. So I'll, 
I'll think about that some more. Robert, pick a question for me here. All right, Murphy, I've got a question for you. This comes from Wendy. It says, Mike, you keep referring, I mean, ad nauseum, to how much <laughs> World War II costs in comparison to Biden's proposed infrastructure bill as if the cost of the bill is ridiculous by that measure. Why? Wasn't it the right thing to do in the 40s for a greater cause, just as it could be now for something that is overdue and not likely to get any cheaper. Just so you know, I'm reading this with my hand on my heart. Murphy? <laughs> well, first of all, Wendy, yeah, I was undecided on the whole fight. The Nazis saying, come on, Wendy. That's not what I said. First of all, I'm for the infrastructure bill because we we got out of the basket weaving stuff and it's real infrastructure. It's great for the country. And I hope the Republicans had the sense to vote for it. It's about $1.2 trillion uh, over eight or 10 years, money well spent to help us compete. My criticism was I started adding everything up, being a grumpy old Muppet balcony fiscal conservative. And I got over $4 trillion between the whatever the polling frame, the American tested America move ahead plan or whatever that one was. And, and some of the COVID aid I'm for COVID aid, but we really went after that with a huge fire hose. So it was over $4 trillion, which if you adjust for inflation is approximately the total cost of the second world war to the U S government. Um, now I know there's been arguments that, Oh my God, it's a great depression, but I looked it up. Six months into FDR's term, unemployment, the unemployment rate in the U.S., so the stats winners were liable then, uh, was pushing 28%. Right now it's six and a half, still too high. So because, shamefully under the Republicans, we forgot about fiscal conservatism, uh, we're spending too much damn money if we were to spend all this. I don't think it'll all get through. Uh, and I oppose that because one day interest rates are going to going to rise to historical norms. There's hints of inflation now. We can argue about that. I'm on the Larry Summers side of the equation. I'm worried. And it's going to crush the federal budget. And eventually you run out of rich people to tax even at 100%. So I'm for infrastructure. I'm a lot less for the other stuff. And a trillion bucks is a lot of damn money. That's what I was trying to communicate with my shameful analogy, although true, about the real cost of the Second World War. And Wendy, the only thing I would add is our super engineer, Jeff Fox, did edit out that Murphy then yelled, get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> you kids, you damn kids. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up. Let's, uh, we have a huge announcement to make in a minute, but first let's thank our guest, the esteemed, experienced, and ever wise, even if he is a progressive, our friend, Steve Israel. Thank you, Steve. Thank you guys. Pleasure to be on with you. Steve, promise you'll come back. That was a great Love discussion. Love you. Yeah. Well, Robert, we have a Robert Gibbs and Mike Murphy Hacks on Tap Galactic announcement. Are you ready? Cue the music. Wow, that's big. I mean, now, people probably think that uh, Gina Raimondo has been made the king of America with that oh, music. Oh, be still but, my heart. Right. Yes. I was going to say, let's, so as not to cause Murphy a cardiac incident, <laughs> Murphy and I are, are announcing on the show here, and, and I've tweeted it out. I'm, I'm sure Murphy will as well. We have started Hacks on Tap newsletter that you can subscribe to, and it will land in your inbox twice a week, and it will be a little bit of the witty repartee that you hear on these podcasts. You'll be used to it if you've listened to the Hacks on Tap podcast with some deeper and different insights to go along with what we do every week here. We'll, like I said, publish twice a week. Go to hacksontap.bulletin.com to sign up. Murphy? 
We're excited about this. We're going to do the old Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan thing where we disagree on a lot of stuff, but we're friends. We can do so agreeably. We think that is important in American politics, and we're going to do what we do, take you behind the curtain about how it really works. So we're going to have a lot of fun with this. It'll pop up in your inbox, on your email, about six, 700 words, a lot of historical tidbits, links to polls, you know, and some stuff you won't hear, a lot of stuff you won't hear here on the podcast because it's kind of its own separate animal. So subscribe for free. Just go to Hacks on tap.bulletin.com. We're also going to do a lot of interactive stuff. We're going to try to do some of these uh, audio chat rooms where we can get on with a bunch of you. Regular chat rooms. We we have a lot of cool stuff to do on this. By the way, nobody edits it. It's just us, so blame us for all the mistakes and malaprops and everything else. But it starts today, and we're really, really excited about it. Now, some of you are going to wonder, where's Axelrod? And I'd like to say criminal check problems, but that's not it. Gibbs and I work for NBC, and we have good lawyers, so we have a carve-out. Axe does his writing on CNN.com, so he couldn't participate in this, but we're going to force him to get a subscription anyway. So check it out. Subscribe. It's free. Hacksontap.bulletin.com launches right now. Well, cool, Robert. I think we did that, and uh, we had a tremendous conversation with our friend Steve. He was a great D-trip chairman. He was respected on our side, so uh, he really knows his business. He was great in the inside, and I love I love the visual of the baseball bats and the chocolate. That's going to be hard <laughs> to get out of my head. Uh, Murphy, uh, as always, uh, I enjoyed it, and I am really looking forward to our new newsletter endeavor. Yeah, we're going to have some great disagreements, a lot of tidbits, and a lot of fun. Until then, hackaroos, we'll talk to you soon. See you, pal. See ya. Sit down. Have a cigar. Are you kidding? I know them cigars. Listen, you want to be reform mayor. Reform mayor? That's what I said. Well, what do you mean, reform mayor? What do you think it means? Don't make me say everything twice, will you? Well, I said, do you want to be reform mayor of this city? Mayor! Well, what do you got to do with the reform party? I am the reform party. Who do you think? You're the reform party. Why do you make me say everything twice? Well, since when? Since a long time ago. In this town, I'm all the parties. You think I'm going to starve every time they change administration? Well, then where does the Reform Party come in? They come in the back door every Wednesday. <laughs> I ask you if you want to be Reform Mayor. You give me a plain answer. Well, sure, I guess so. Good. You're in. You'll have to kiss a lot of babies, meet a lot of guys, and uh, wear your old clothes. I don't want no dudes after that last one.